Everything happens for a reason. Isn't that how the saying goes? It's hard to think about when those happenings are horrifying and violent and bring you to the brink of death. But sometimes, sometimes those experiences make you stronger and help you become someone you never thought you could be. I'm Mel Hill, and this is The Survivors. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Survivors. Follow along with us on Instagram at The Survivors Podcast for pictures and visuals pertaining to each story. This week's episode is part one of our first two-parter. After many, many hours of research, we have decided that this story was too incredible, too remarkable for us to be able to cover it all in just one episode. The good news is, though it will be a cliffhanger, we all know how it will end. Terry Jandusa Nikolai survives. The subject matter of this episode contains graphic details of domestic violence. If you or anyone you know needs help getting out of an abusive relationship, please call the Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE for help. That's 1-800-799-7233. January 31st, 2004 was a frigid day in Wind Lake, Wisconsin. Terry Jandusa Nikolai braved the cold to pick up her two young daughters from her ex-husband, David Larson's home that day. And what was supposed to be just a quick trip ended up changing Terry's life forever. Terry grew up in a suburb just outside of Wisconsin. She had a loving family with three siblings and her parents happily married, for 52 years to be exact. She had a great high school experience and was quite popular with lots of friends. She was pretty with dark brown curly hair and a contagious smile. Though Terry first went to college, her true dream was to settle down, get married, and start a family of her own. It was in college that she first met David Larson. Years later, he resurfaced in her life through the same circle of friends, and they began dating. David was a great catch. He was hardworking, intelligent, and had a nice home. They shared the same values, faith in God, and desire to start a family. David was everything Terry had ever been looking for in a partner. According to a close friend, Terry and David had a happy and loving relationship. They seemed like the perfect couple. They married in what Terry called a fairy tale wedding and really believed they would live happily ever after. Things seemed to shift as soon as they were married. On their honeymoon, Terry remembers Larson becoming angry and confrontational about something as trivial as what she was going to wear on a hike. And that was the first time he ever struck her. She remembers her first thought being, I'm out of here. I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to get out of here. But Larson berated her. He told her that a wife is to obey her husband. 
It's in the Bible. And Terry began to feel guilty. How could she have just gotten married and only a week later be thinking of separation or worse, divorce? She felt like it would make her look like a fool to leave Larson. It took three years for Terry to finally decide to leave him. In her words, it took three years too long. During the time they were married, they had two daughters. When Terry's youngest was only two months old, she left. It was a long, tumultuous, and drawn-out divorce. David Larson fought it every step of the way. He constantly threatened Terry. He believed that Terry had wed him and therefore belonged to him and no court of law could tell him otherwise. He told her she would live to regret her decision. Because of Larson's violent history with Terry, she fought hard against sharing custodial rights. She didn't think it was safe for her daughters to grow up, even part-time, with such a hostile influence in their lives. Unfortunately, even despite Terry's claims of violence and ongoing abuse, a judge awarded joint custody of the girls. Now she would be forced to have lifelong interactions with her abuser, twice a week, because she couldn't prove that he had or will abuse their daughters. Terry, on the other hand, had documented cases of the domestic violence she had suffered at the hands of Larson. One report in particular where she had been punched in the face. But the DA had dropped the charges against Larson, stating there simply wasn't enough evidence. Several months after she had left Larson, in 1999, Terry joined a community choir. It was in this choir where she met Nick Nikolai. They became friends and Terry felt comfortable sharing her difficult past with Nick. Coming from such a controlling and abusive relationship, Nick was a breath of fresh air. And by October of 2003, they were married. Terry's girls loved spending time with Nick. Things had changed for the better. But there was one person who didn't care for the new relationship, Terry's ex. During one recent visit to pick up her girls from Larson's home, Nick accompanied. But when Larson spotted Nick in the car, his rage boiled over. He screamed at Terry and Nick, his face turning beet red and his veins bulging from his neck. What should have been a simple pickup had ballooned into this huge ordeal. Terry was afraid of Larson. She had tried unsuccessfully to get him served with papers, but finally she got a restraining order against him on July 22, 2004. So on the afternoon of January 31st, 2004, three years to the day of her divorce, Terry told her new husband, Nick, she was heading out to pick up the girls. When Nick volunteered to accompany her, she said she thought it best if he stayed home. She didn't need Larson to spot him and cause more drama. And besides, it should only take a few minutes. Terry hopped in her car and headed over. It was very cold that day only 17 degrees, but it was only about a five minute drive to Larson's home. Terry planned on picking up the girls and then taking them to shop for a gift for a friend's birthday party that they were attending later that evening. Right when she arrived at the home, Larson opened the door and said, they're not ready, and slammed the door in her face. So Terry turned around, walked back to her car, and turned on the radio. She waited five minutes, 10 minutes, 
and then finally she returned back to the front door and rang the bell. She told him to collect the girls because she really needed to get going. They had plans. Larson then took a step back and told Terry to come inside. He told her that the girls wanted to play a game, hide and seek, and that they wanted her to find them. Right away, this struck Terry as odd. Never had she been allowed inside Larson's home since their split, not since the day she was allowed to retrieve her belongings. It had been five years since she had walked out and left him. It didn't feel right going inside, but Terry ignored her gut. She knew her girls were playful and they were four and six years old after all. So she thought, okay, I can play along real quick, find the girls and then we'll be off. So she stepped inside. She playfully called out, where are you? And stepped further inside the home. Then suddenly, whack! David Larson struck Terry on the side of the head with a baseball bat. She was knocked momentarily unconscious. When she came to, he was standing over her with a black wooden Louisville slugger and she knew after all the years of control and threats and abuse, he was finally gonna do it. He was finally going to kill her. As she looked up, she saw his eyes were black. He was enraged. His face held the look of pure evil. Dazed and bleeding, Terry tried to stand up and whack, he hit her in the face. She fell down, spitting up blood. She let out a cry as she tried to get onto her hands and knees and Larson smashed the bat across her back, knocking her down again. She cried out again and Larson grabbed her face and said, shut up, I don't want the girls to hear you. This only confused and terrified her more. She thought, he's planning on killing me and the girls are in the house? And yes, they were. Their two daughters were locked in a bedroom with a movie playing, with the volume turned all the way up, completely oblivious to the horror that was occurring in the house. Larson told Terry that he won't let her take his girls. Terry tried to reason with him between blows from the bat, telling him anything that he wanted to hear. He didn't have to pay child support, she wouldn't go to the cops, and he just replied, bullshit. Your promises don't mean anything, and continued to bludgeon her. He struck Terry in the head with that baseball bat at least 20 times. For some reason, during the struggle, Larson removed Terry's socks and shoes and attempted to stuff her own socks in her mouth to gag her. All the while, Terry fought him tooth and nail. He was attempting to suffocate her with his hand over her mouth and Terry remembered something she had seen in a movie. Turn your head away. And she did. It worked and he continuously lost his grip and became more and more enraged. Larson then took duct tape and bound Terry's hands together. He then wrapped the duct tape, starting at her forehead, all the way around her head, all the way around her face, covering her eyes, her nose, her mouth, her chin. Literally, her entire head was covered in duct tape. He bound her feet, 
But during the struggle, Terry's jogging pants began slipping down. And in frustration, he removed them completely. She remembers him saying the same thing that he had repeated many times during their tumultuous relationship. Don't make this look like something it's not. Meaning, don't make this look like I'm also raping you when I'm only beating you to death with a baseball bat, binding you with duct tape, and attempting to suffocate you. Terry decided to stop struggling. She was barely able to breathe through the duct tape. She was suffocating. But in this moment, she thought of her children, how they were still in the home. She couldn't just give up, and she knew Larson wasn't going to stop until she was dead. She lay motionless, and Larson stepped away for a moment. But in an instant, he was back with a big rubber-made garbage can. He picked Terry up and shoved her in head first. The fact that Terry was thinking at all by this point is nothing short of miraculous. She had been severely beaten in the head with a goddamn baseball bat and was bleeding profusely. The tape wrapped around her head felt like a vice, slowly cinching tighter and tighter as her head and face swelled beyond recognition. But she wasn't dead and she was cognizant enough to realize she was being put in this garbage bin head first. And she knew if she didn't figure out a way to quickly twist herself upright, that would be it for her. So somehow, she was able to maneuver her body upright as Larson dragged her over the threshold of the house and out onto the sidewalk. She could feel the concrete grinding on the bottom of the bin. And then she felt snow, ice cold being dumped all around her. Larson was filling the garbage bin with snow. And don't forget, not only was it a freezing 17 degrees January day, but Terry no longer had her pants on and her feet were completely bare because Larson had also ripped her socks and shoes off in the struggle. She remembers at one point saying, I'm cold. And he replied, I know. Struggling to stay conscious, Terry knew she was being hoisted upward. She knew she was in the bed of his truck. She knew he covered the bin with a tarp, but that was it. Things went quiet for a moment. And then Terry remembered something. Her cell phone was in her jacket pocket. Somehow, with her hands bound, head completely wrapped in duct tape, she managed to reach into her pocket and get her phone. And this was 2004, a time when cell phones still had actual buttons, thank God, because Terry used her fingertips to feel the buttons to dial 911. At 10.57 a.m., that first call came into Racine County Police Dispatch. Now, I've listened to her 911 calls numerous times, and they still haunt me. She was able to bring the phone to her face, though her hands were still bound, and you can hear her labored breathing. Her face was still duct taped, and she knew it would be difficult to hear her. The operator hears this labored breathing and is struggling to understand what the caller is saying. She asks if she's having trouble breathing. Terry replies yes and repeats the address again. 26841 Oak Ridge Drive slowly and carefully to the operator. Before the call is ended, the dispatcher hears the address, 
repeats it, and sends paramedics to assist someone who is in possible respiratory distress. Here's part of the actual call as played on ABC's 2020 in an instant. I can't hear you. A few minutes later, Terry heard an ambulance and squad cars, but by this time they were on the road, and they must have just passed right by. She was jammed into this garbage bin in the fetal position and could barely move her knees. She was in the back of a moving pickup truck, going God knows where, covered with a tarp. At that moment, Terry made a decision. She thought, quote, no one would ever find me. And if I was going to survive, I needed to save myself. According to Terry, what kept her alive was her daughter's. She knew she had to fight to stay here to save them the hurt and the trauma of losing their mother at such a young age. Terry was quoted on ABC's 2020 in an instant as saying, It was that thought that lit the fire that kept me going. Meanwhile, back at Oak Ridge Drive, paramedics and police arrive at 11.03 and knock at the door. All they know is that there has been a 911 call for someone having trouble breathing, possibly respiratory distress. When no one answers the door, the police kick the door in. They were concerned that whoever had called 911 could possibly be incapacitated, weak, or unable to answer the door. The paramedics do a quick cursory search of the home, looking for a person, but they found no one. Police at the scene then start calling local hospitals and speak to neighbors to see if they know of anyone that could have been in distress or if they'd seen anything. Very quickly, they discovered that this was not a typical rescue call. Neighbors inform police that this is the home of David Larson and that his ex-wife had arrived earlier that day to pick up their children. They also had witnessed Larson towing his ex-wife's car away from the residence earlier that morning. This information led police to believe that there was more to this story. Nick Nikolai was at home waiting for Terry to return when he got a call from a friend that lived a few houses down from David Larson. This friend told Nick that there were police and an ambulance outside of Larson's home. Instantly, Nick knew something was wrong. He called 911 to report his wife missing and possibly in danger. He explained that she had been over at her ex-husband's residence and hadn't returned. She was supposed to pick up her daughters and return home, a trip that should have taken 30 minutes max, and it had been now going on three hours. He also tells police that he doesn't know where Terry's daughters are, as she was supposed to be picking them up. This kicks police into high gear. There had already been many red flags for them since that first distressing 911 call. They immediately sent out an Amber Alert looking for Terry and the two young girls, Amanda and Holly, aged only four and six. Terry is still in the back of the pickup truck. And at some point after her first 911 call, she's able to dial Nick's phone number. Though he can barely hear her, he can hear the words tarp 
and he's trying to kill me. Nick thought it sounded like she was driving and asked her if she knew where he was taking her. Terry replied no. And then he told Terry that she needed to hang up with him and call 911 again. And so she did. This time, her 911 call was sent to the Milwaukee dispatch, about half an hour north of where she lived. This time, the 911 dispatcher isn't so helpful. She thought it was a prank call. Terry breathes heavily through the duct tape and massive head wounds and tells the dispatcher that her ex-husband is trying to kill her and that he has her in the back of his Dodge 4x4 under a tarp. She kept repeating her name for the dispatcher, Terry Jendusa, and told her her ex-husband was David Larson. Then the dispatcher asks her to lift the tarp to see where she is, and Terry replies she can't. When asked if her hands are handcuffed or what, Terry replies, masking tape. The dispatcher replies, masking tape? Then how are you holding the phone? At this point, Terry begins blacking out. She just breathes heavily into the phone, to which the dispatcher replies, do you want to talk to me or do you just want to deep breathe? This is the last thing Terry remembers of that call before she completely blacked out. Wow, are you kidding me? Like, seriously? The way that this call was handled was so wrong. I mean, I get it. There are people who make prank phone calls, but wouldn't you just wanna err on the side of caution and just assume that someone calling 911 is in distress? But I digress. Back at Larson's home, police enter the residence without a search warrant based on exigent circumstances. Now, for those of you who don't know, exigent circumstances allow police to conduct a search of a home without a search warrant when there is a critical life or death situation involving that residence. So, in police go, and the first thing that they take in is the condition of the home. It was extremely cluttered and messy. Dinner still sat on the table from the night before, and dishes were stacked high in the sink. There were mounds of laundry, paper, boxes, clothing, just stuff everywhere. And David Larson seemed to be the kind of person who discarded very little. As police made their way through the home, even amidst all the mess, Lead investigator Christopher Schmeling noticed something alarming. There was a large red stain, possibly, presumably, blood on the carpet in the dining area. He also noticed a trash can nearby with a leg of a sweatpants sticking out over the edge. When he pulled these pants from the can, he saw duct tape on them, wrapped and pulled and tangled on the legs. He said that those pants, quote, just had the feel of a struggle that had taken place. He then noticed what appeared to be more blood on the duct tape. But where are the children? Police have now found blood in the home, and Terry is nowhere to be found, and Detective Schmeling began fearing the worst. Though he wanted to disprove it, he feared that they could be looking at a triple homicide. Now police needed to find the one person who knows where Terry and her daughters are located. And that person is David Larson. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Survivors. Tune in next week for the incredible and dramatic conclusion to Terry Jendusa Nikolai's story. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for new episodes every week and tell your friends. Thanks for supporting The Survivors. <laughs>